Philippians chapter 2, if you want to open to there. I'm going to start in verse 17. As I mentioned, this is a passage that we treated in depth a couple of months ago. I'm just going to skip across uh, the, the tips of the icebergs this morning. If you are interested in that message to go in more depth, we can get that uh, into your hands or direct you to it. But Philippians 2.17, let's uh, read the Lord's word, Paul writing to these believers he loves back in Philippi while he is in prison. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. 25. I'd thought necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. 29. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient or what was still to be fulfilled in your service to me. You guys can be seated. Well, Mountain Christian Church, greetings to you this morning in the strong name of Jesus Christ from your brothers and sisters in the church in Ethiopia. Pastor Sagaye, Pastor Tesfaye, Pastor Mersha, and others send a special greeting to you this morning. They asked me to communicate. At our meeting with the missionaries, these brothers prayed for us as a church and thanked the Lord for us as a church. They said, thank you for your huge heart for the gospel or else this relationship and ministry would not happen. We get the privilege of supporting four indigenous Ethiopian missionaries who are going to unreached people groups in other places in Ethiopia sent from that church. They said, may God bless you as you are a proven missionary church. Where's Vince Tidwell? Where's our missions team? Amen. How do you like hearing that? You are a proven missionary church. Oh, Lord, may it be, right? They gave credit to Pastor Tesfaye, who is our primary contact in country and has been now for almost a decade, for the idea for this partnership between the churches in supporting and sending the missionaries. Finally, they said, please take our gratitude back to your church and your leaders back home. So that I have done. So I greet you in the strong name of Jesus Christ on behalf of your brothers and sisters in the church in Ethiopia. I want us this morning to be encouraged in the word and also be encouraged in our brothers and sisters in Ethiopia. And along the way, I want to introduce you to our four missionary church planters. I say introduce because two of them we've been in support of for about five or six years. Two of them are new in our um, support. And so uh, I want you to have a chance to get an introduction or an update, whichever it might be for all of them. Paul wrote to his beloved Christians in Philippi, and in chapter 2, he exhorted them in his absence to be, uh, he, he exhorted them in the selfless life for the cause of Christ. 
That's really what he kicks off near the end of chapter 1 as we tracked it through. The, the epic example of the Lord Jesus Christ in his humility at the beginning of, of chapter 2 uh, carries through that idea of the selfless life for the cause of Christ. And then he ends chapter 2 with uh, the example through these three men whom we saw mentioned this morning. So let me pick up in the midst of the stream of that story with um, a point from Philippians 2, and it is this. You were made. You were made for the selfless life in the cause of Christ. I was made for that. Every human being was made for the selfless life for the cause of Christ. Any other call will pale in comparison. Any other call needs to be subordinated to and put in concert with that call of a selfless life for the cause of Christ. That's what I want to draw out of Philippians 2 this morning, and that's where I want you to be encouraged and me as well. That's what Paul's been telling these Christians throughout this section. He is going to give them four aspects of what that life looks like. I'm just going to rattle them off for you. The selfless life values others. It shows its character to be worthy. It lives as a servant, and it does all that it does for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because by faith, Christ coming to live in you, if you place your trust in him, that is what he is all about, and that is what he does through every believer. That is what Paul will argue and has argued. And this is what you and I were made for. It's our design. It is a corruption for you to seek any other glory above the glory that you were meant for in Christ. It is a tragedy that we pursue praise in any other pursuit before and above praise in the pursuit of the selfless life for the cause of Christ. So Christ not only died for sinners because we needed a savior, but he did so much more. He died so that he could rise and send his spirit to come and transform sinners and remake us into eternal glory seekers. Paul then encourages the Philippians and he encourages us with these three human examples, these three pictures of the selfless life. Look at them again with me quickly. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus are three dissimilar men. We won't have time to talk about why they are dissimilar, but they are quite. But they all became humble, sacrificial, eternal glory seekers for Christ. Paul 17, look at verse 17. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Paul is now a man being poured out. This is a man who uh, did not bow to anyone. This is a man who made men and women bow to him. This was a man well taught, a man successful, a man heavily persecuting the believers of his day, rising to the top of his class, you know, ready to be one of the leaders in the nation. And he gave it all up. He gave it all up so he could pour his life out. And he said, it's all garbage that I left behind, and it's all gain that I embraced in its place. He is a drink offering poured out together with the lives of the faithful believers whom he serves. And then Timothy in 22, you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. He speaks of Timothy's uncommon character that he stands out even amongst the believers of his day. He has a proven reputation that they themselves know well and that he served in all that he did for the sake of the gospel going forward. 
and then Epaphroditus, 27. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me. Epaphroditus risked his life in the midst of this simple task of taking some goods to Paul while he was in prison, delivering the love, being a physical manifestation of the prayers of the people for him, and then just coming alongside him to serve him in the midst of his needs. And he became legendary in doing that. He was known for his love of the Philippians and for his love of Paul. And Paul says of him, and really ultimately of all of them, these words in verse 29, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard. Hold them in high regard. This is what servants of the Lord are. This is what we are called to be and get to be the Holy Spirit living in us and through us, empowering us, growing more like Christ in selflessness. Get to be men and women of high regard. Who, does, who, who is it that makes the headlines of the newspapers of heaven? It's not the leaders of countries necessarily. It's not those with the power or the finances or the movers in business and culture. It is those who live selfless lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hold them in high regard. So let's notice then this morning in that same keeping some selfless, gospel-centered, God-glorifying men who model this, certainly not perfectly, but a life that is faithful and effective in several ways. But if you'll put that up for us, brother. Alabachu Warku is the first one I'm going to in, uh, introduce you to. Let me tell you who we're not talking about. Um, there's the guy with the glasses in the middle. Uh, that's not the guy. Um, the guy on the far left is Solomon. He is the missions pastor of our sending church. That's not the guy. Uh, the guy three over from the left, that is Pastor Tsagaye. Pastor Tsagaye has been walking with the Lord long enough to have been in prison under the communist reign for the sake of Christ. The man has lived it, and he is a humble man. Uh, the man on the far right as well, Pastor Mercia, another uh, pastor serving in the church, another one of the senior pastors. So the three remaining gentlemen, second from left is Henok. Uh, Henok means Enoch. His parents named him after Enoch in the Bible. Uh, and then to the left of, of me, your left, in the light blue shirt is Tesfaye Jembere. And then the first gentleman we're going to talk about is just to the right, your right, of me, and that is Alabachu. Three things you can write down of the ways that he has served the Lord and shown this honorable life. If you choose to, we can jot these down. Through his work, through his relationships, and through God-given favor. Whatever work God has given you to do, whatever relationships he has put in your life, these can be used for the selfless life. Alabachu is uh, serving among the Afar Muslim tribes uh, in the north and eastern part of Ethiopia. He is a woodworker by trade. He has only been at the site where he serves for two months. He is taking over for a previous uh, missionary pastor uh, who we were supporting, and now he is taking over the work. Uh, Alabachu is a, a young man, um, great joy, great zeal. He makes tables and chairs. And as he conducts his business in the community with the Muslims, he builds relationships and he tears his, shares his testimony. 
He says he finds it easy to build relationships and easy to talk about spiritual things. He says, quote, they know that I'm a businessman and they know that I am a Christian. What I find so interesting, especially because he is a younger man, is the favor that he has been given. He says it's a challenge because the people here do not have any knowledge, any knowledge of Christ or the gospel, except what they've been taught about Esau in the Quran, about Jesus in the Quran. That's it. He said that's a huge challenge, but it's also a privilege. He often finds success when people choose to trust him with something they're struggling with, or um, he has had people come to him, even in spite of his youth, and ask him for counsel. He takes that as a God-given appointment to speak truth to them, to speak to them out of the wisdom of God's word if there's the opportunity to pray for them. And it opens the door. Uh, Medina is a uh, bank teller in the town where he serves. She has come to Christ through relationship with Alabachu just in his first few weeks of having been there. For Alabachu, he asked specifically, would you pray for me to see the hearts that are open? He says, would you pray for salvation for the town? He says, my desire is to raise up natives for this ministry. He wants to see, he's not from the Afar tribe, he's from another tribe. He wants to see local Afar ex-Muslim believers raised up to do the ministry long haul. And he is also praying for a wife. Alabachi Warku, through his work, through his relationships, and through the God-given favor that he has in the community, is living that life. Next is Tesfaye Jembere in the light blue shirt, standing just next to me. Tesfaye is married. He and Tadelich have uh, eight children, um, by the way. He is ministering near the border of Djibouti. And uh, you do a little bit of research on that, you will find out that that is not a safe place to be. Three ways that Tesfaye Jembere has demonstrated this selfless life, glorifying Christ. First, by the divine connections, divine connections God has given. Second, through his bold challenge of others. What I love about our missionary church planter brothers is they're not satisfying in seeing someone come to faith in Christ, and that is huge because in their culture it's a call away from everything to something they've never known. And yet at the same time he's saying, no, this is just the beginning. Now you get to start training. Now you get to start growing. Now you get to start multiplying. Your life becomes an influence. You'll see a bold challenge through Tesfaye Jembere and through that call for transformed lives, for them to be transformed. We'll see that as well. Tesfaye Jembere. By the way, I always say two names because Tesfaye is a not entirely uncommon name in Ethiopia, so I'm differentiating him from Pastor Tesfaye, so Pastor Tesfaye is like the Pastor Tesfaye. That's, that gives you the picture, right? Um, this man is a pastor of pastors, Pastor Tesfaye is. Uh, but the missionary that we support is Tesfaye Jambere. Um, he tells the story of the first person that came to Christ after he came into the town where he serves. The gentleman's name was Baleta. Tesfaye Jambere says this town is very wild. Um, it is uh, known for its profligate lives, for the drugs, 
that happened there just for being a, a, an unruly community in general. And Bolete was a ringleader. He uh, was a drug user. Uh, he chewed chot. Uh, that's pretty common uh, in this region. It's a plant drug that gives off a natural high if you chew on it. Uh, for smoking and drinking, being destructive personally and financially, his family was in ruins. And then he met Tesfaye Jambare, and he came to Christ. Not only did he come to Christ, but his wife and his son came to Christ as well with him. The change in him was so dramatic that the people who knew Belete literally just started to ask questions like, what's going on with this guy? He stopped using all drugs. His personality changed. He took on responsibility. He had a new heart for his family. All who knew him in the community were shocked. Can I have somebody bring me a tissue? I don't want to just stand up here and be disgusting. I apologize. Are there some back here? There's a box. Somebody throw it at me. Thanks, brother. You're awesome. Okay. Nobody look. All right. Thank you. People literally came and asked him what happened. And he told them. And many began to ask to know more about Isa. Wait, who? Isa? The guy we've heard about? He's the one who's made this change in your life. Some uh, later came to Tesfaye Jembere. And they said, we, uh, we see what's happened in Baleta. Um, we want what he has. Would you pray for us? Two families came to Christ as a result of the change in Beletta's life. In addition, two other men who knew Beletta well and ran with him, Awal and Hussein, they also came and said to Tesfaye Jembera, please come and pray for us so that we can be saved. Both of them have come to Christ and are now being discipled. Four women in the town where he serves, where he goes to just buy bread regularly. Injera is a common bread product in Ethiopia made from teff, a grain that is native to the land. Four women who bake and sell injera, he just through the course of picking up groceries got to know these four women and share the gospel with them. They've been listening to the gospel for, the while, for a while. One day the four women said to him, but if we decide to follow Jesus, nobody will buy injera from us anymore because they will know. In the end, all four have decided to follow Christ anyway. Pray for them. Pray for their business, for their provision. Tisfaya Jembera says, I've also grown in relationship with a guard at the bank named Mohammed Abdullah. That's Irish, by the way. Um, he told me, please, we are in much bondage here, first from the government and in many other ways. Would you pray for us? He is still praying for Muhammad Abdullah and talking to him. In addition, a gentleman named Mustafa is a Muslim man who has recently begun attending their services on Sunday morning. You can pray for Mustafa. When I asked him, what can we specifically lift up besides these things that you have mentioned? And there are some others, but that's the short version. He specifically said, would you pray for me to have strength to overcome any obstacles? How do you like that? 
It's like the believers in Acts chapter 4 after being heavily persecuted who first praised God that they got to suffer for the sake of the name. And then in response to that, when they gathered and prayed, you remembered, what did they pray for? Boldness. And the place where they prayed was shaken. They prayed for strength to overcome any obstacles. He says, also, would you pray for my children that they would grow in the Lord and that the Lord would sustain them? This is Tesfaye Jembere, by divine connections that God has given him through his bold challenge of others and through his willingness to call men and women to transform lives, not apologizing but saying, yes, there will be a great cost if you decide to follow Jesus, but oh, it's worth it. Henok Gazibo Tumato, just second from the left. Uh, Henok has been serving in the area where he is for about seven years. He is in north-central Ethiopia in a difficult place as well. In fact, in Henok's case, um, as best as I can tell, what I gleaned, this seems to be the case. He travels to go to minister in this town. Well, I shouldn't say he travels. It's more that he travels home on occasion. He lives in a rented room uh, in this town. He didn't say this, but you'll hear his story. Uh, I believe it's because it's so unsafe for his wife and children to even be there um, that that is why he is serving in this way. Henok shows his selfless living for the cause of Christ through first submitting to God's miracles, second through prayer and boldness, and finally through suffering. <clears throat> Henoch says, many in our church have come to Christ miraculously. You would not be surprised that I was not surprised. Muhammad Awal was a demon-possessed man. They had kept his hands bound for a year. Sound familiar? The guy was literally so problematic that his family bound his hands. Many times the holy men had come and brought the Quran, and they had read to him, and they had prayed over him, but after a year's time, there was no help. Henoch says that a member of our church knew this family and then made the connection with them to me and mentioned me to the landlord of this family. Um, he says it's kind of like the, the Syrian girl uh, in the Bible with the story of, uh, I think that was Elijah or Elisha, definitely one of the two guys. He says the family reached out to me. Henoch says when I came, I found the man nearly crazy when I visited him. The people had given up on him at this point. They told me, we want him saved. I told them, I can't heal him, but I know someone who can. Some of their holy men came and they tried to chase me away, but his wife would have none of it. She fought with them and convinced me to stay. The holy men left. So we prayed. I prayed with his wife and with his children. In about 10 minutes, Muhammad Awal was delivered. The entire family embraced Christ. He goes on to say, later I was attacked by some from the community and I was brutally beaten. I was taken to the hospital and then after seen there and treated, I was moved to a higher hospital. This was in 2019. My eye was beaten up and swollen so badly that the doctors did everything for me that they could 
but they weren't sure that I would recover sight and weren't sure that I would keep the eye. They did all that they could and left me. I was in the hospital for two months. Eventually, by God's grace, I did heal, and I still have my sights. He says, there is much resistance and persecution. He says, I've been chased out of the house where I rented. At one point, uh, through a planned burglar, burglary, uh, some men broke in and they stole all of my belongings. Another time, the leaders of the town came around to my landlords and said, you may not rent to this man anymore. He does not belong in this city. And they went around to others that they knew who rented and said, you may not rent to this man. He went to some government workers for help, and they eventually found a place for him to live for a handful of months at that time. He says, while I was there, there was a boy who was very sick. He'd been sick for two years and was now in the hospital. He was failing, and they knew that he was going to die. I went to the hospital to pray for them, for him. Sorry, He was near death and was not responsive. The boy was not from the area. As best as I could tell, it was either because the mom was not from the local tribe or the dad was not from the local tribe, one or the other. In any case, as a result, he says, the native people told the mother that she would need to purchase a burial plot for the boy once he died, that that would cost her $6,000. I would guess that's probably in the neighborhood of like $50,000 for us. I, I could be off, but you get the picture. And they said they needed the money right away. Then he's described some things, and he says, uh, no one would tell me what was going on. I'm just telling you the story as it was translated to me. I don't fully understand. But he does say this. He says, but the Spirit gave me clarity. He said, the Spirit told me, pray for this boy. He also told me to tell the people, let me pray for the boy, and if he dies, it will be my fault. They asked, how can you heal him? I said, you will see. God will heal him. The boy looked dead. He'd been unresponsive for a while. I prayed for him, and he opened his eyes. I asked the family, and they agreed to let me take the boy home. I took him home, and after three days, he was entirely recovered. The boy's name is Melissa. He says, I shared with Melissa about Jesus Christ, and he believed. After this, the whole family believed and others as well who heard about Melissa. A man, a man named Abraim came to Christ because of this healing, because he had known the family for some time. Three other women who also knew the family had learned of what God did, and they came to Christ because of the power of Isa as well. By the way, I was encouraged to hear as uh, Henoch was relating the story. I, I'm going to just be totally honest. I'm like, I come from a million miles away, I show up, and y'all just tell me stories. And I'm like, yeah, totally, right? And, and I'd like to believe that everybody I know is of a character that I can completely trust in. And I do. But I was encouraged because Pastor Tesfaye, who I've known for a number of years now, said, yeah, brother, by the way, I've met two of the three women who came to Christ through the healing of Melissa. I've heard their testimony. You ask them, how did, how did you come to follow Jesus? They would say, well, there was this little boy who'd been sick for two years. And they will start, and that is the beginning of their testimony of coming to faith in Christ. Henoch also, because of the difficulties of the community, has a very peculiar way of sharing the gospel. You may want to try this out. I don't know. 
He says, I go to a crowded place where there are a lot of people, maybe a market or something, and I will take my phone and I will walk around with my phone to my ear. I'm not talking to anybody on the phone. With my phone to my ear, and I will just walk around and share the gospel. And as I do, I just notice people who are noticing me and who are listening. And sometimes people will come up to me and I will end my conversation. And they will say, can you tell me what you were just talking about? What was that? And so I share the gospel with them. He says three people have come to Christ this way. All of those three, by the way, are now in basic discipleship uh, with Henok and his church. When asked for specific prayer, there are other stories, but other things you can pray for, but a couple of particulars. He says, well, because of the persecution, I need prayer support. I thought, well, that's an understatement. He says also, I take disciples out into the bush. We go up to the mountain to get away for prayer or for study and to read the Bible together. I don't know, does that sound familiar? Or heard of that anywhere before? Taking the disciples up the mountain or out in the bush. He says, if people see me praying with them and teaching like this, then they will chase me away. He says, it is hard for me to be away from my family. So he asked prayer for that as well. He says, I want to see the gospel of Jesus Christ greatly spread among the afar people. Well, just a few things to encourage you about our brother there. Uh, Josh Bro, would you go on to uh, the next picture? Right, sorry, so this is a little hard to see. Would you kill the center light over there? Yeah, thanks. Just push it in. It's a plunger. Ah, there you go. It helps a little bit. Um, this is uh, Ephesone Erbalo. Uh, Ephesone, uh, in contrast to the first three gentlemen, actually serves in the south. And in the region uh, where he is, it's a very different challenge he has. Rather than being a Muslim-dominated area, uh, there, there are 80 tribes in Ethiopia, by the way, um, his region is dominated by the, the tribal powers, and uh, the, tribal, the tribes, by and large, uh, are, are paganistic, they're animistic, and um, their witch doctors and their local tribal rulers are the ones that have the power in their region. By the way, if you grew up in the same time frame when I did, and somebody said the word Ethiopia to you, uh, you pictured emaciated children in deserts. That is essentially the place where Ephesone is. In fact, he told me when I visited with him five years ago, uh, he named a certain area, and he said, that was a place years ago when uh, people would come with uh, camera crews, and they liked to film uh, what was happening in that area. Very, very sad. Ephesone's parents were believers. Uh, his name, by the way, means Ephesian. His parents named him after those believers. In scripture, he came to Christ at a young age. He felt um, that the Lord was calling him to first a full-time ministry at the age of 15, which is a little over three decades ago, and he's been ministering ever since. Uh, what I love about Ephesone is how he started out. At 15 years old, he was so convinced of the gospel. And this was a guy who grew up with Christian parents, too. So uh, believing parents take some courage from this, right? This isn't a guy who just came out of total darkness. But man, when he came to Christ and felt God's call on his life, it was real. 
um, he just started sharing the gospel with everybody he knew. And if anybody came to Christ, he just started doing Bible studies with them. And he began to disciple these people, some of them many years older than him. What happened is he began to need to put people together in groups, and the groups would grow in size. And so he was doing all these different Bible studies. And before he knew it, he had multiple Bible studies, and pretty soon he had planted a church and didn't know it. In 2009, um, Epheson was ordained as a pastor in the church that he had started many years before. They finally got around and said, well, we ought to just like make you a pastor, I guess, at some point. The church was organized in 2009, and he stayed and ministered there until 2013. And then he moved to this very, very desolate region that I described to you uh, near Turmi in southern Ethiopia. In his first few years in Turmi, uh, God allowed him great favor, and uh, he and those who came alongside him baptized 55 new believers in the first few years. Uh, at the time that I was meeting with him five years ago, uh, he is the one of our four missionaries that I did not get to spend time with this trip. He couldn't travel. The other three could. But at that time, five years ago, he said there, there are currently 10 that we have in preparation for baptism. By the way, understand in a context of persecution, baptism is not undertaken lightly because the day that you're baptized is the day that you are marked as a target. You can do certain things with the Christians. You can hang out with the Christians, but the day that you're baptized, you renounce the past, right, publicly, and you let everybody know that you have a new future, and everybody begins to act like it. Believers in this region are sometimes beaten and threatened uh, from the time of their baptism. Uh, the persecution comes from the tribal leaders and the witch doctors who will sometimes call the people and the tribes to do that because they say that uh, this person does not honor our gods anymore. Uh, they're animistic gods. Uh, the chiefs especially lead the persecution. And as I mentioned before, the area is a desert. Food is uh, scarce for everyone. Uh, he says, many times you try to go to the market, but there simply is no food there. And if there is food, it is very expensive, and you are rationed as to what you can get. Fesson and his wife, Negist. Negist, by the way, means queen. Fesson and Negist have four children. Actually, they had four children then. They may have more. Buying food for their family is a challenge. Sometimes it's not there. Sometimes it's there, but it's rationed and it's expensive. Sometimes you just have to travel to get it, or you're out of luck. This man... And his wife, Nagist, have been children of God of great faith to say we will knowingly lead our family into a desolate, deprived, desperate area, trusting that God will, God will provide for us because there is a bread that is more needful. There is a food that must be brought to this region more than just crops and water and things like that. There is a sustenance that has got to go to this place. And God has called, and so we will bring it. So for prayer requests for our brother Epheson, uh, he and his large family supporting the children is a daily challenge. 
Pray for God to provide, even through miraculous means. Pray also for his protection and theirs, for their perseverance especially, in light of the persecutions that they know they will face and that they call others to face. Efeso and Abalo, through diligent discipleship, through long consistency, and by great faith and trust in God through adversity, he is showing the way of the selfless life for Christ. The thing that I think I'm most impressed by when I go to uh, Ethiopia, you can turn the lights back on if you want, uh, is the humility of these leaders and pastors. Uh, because we come as teachers, we're, we're accorded a special honor. Because we're, uh, you know, a foreigner, it's like we're a foreign dignitary. I mean, they don't bow before us or anything like that. But there's, there's a special honor. And every time I think, why do you honor me? Because, you, you know, you roll with it and you're like, yes, thank you. God bless you. Love you. And then you sit down and you spend five minutes and you hear their stories. And you're like, I should be the one, right, rolling out the red carpets for you guys, each and every one of you. The humility is so sweet. A story I think I've maybe told once or twice before. I remember on a, I don't know, a second or third trip um, to Ethiopia, one of our uh, pastor translators was part of the two or three that met us at the airport. We were driving back in the bus. Uh, the streets are just absolutely exciting. Um, so I try not to pay any attention to the traffic whatsoever. And so we're having a conversation. And so I asked my brother, I said, so, well, what, I don't know how this came, but I said, hey, so what did you do yesterday? And he said, oh, you know, we had a prayer meeting yesterday. Okay, good. And then he, you know, returns faith. He asked me some questions, gets to know me and my family and stuff. And then I realized I'm doing all the talking. So I said, so no, well, so brother, you know, so I'm trying to turn it back to him. So I said, so, well, so tell me again, tell me, so what did you do yesterday? And he smiles, kind of pauses. He's thinking the, the American really just doesn't get it. He said, um, yeah, we, we had a prayer meeting yesterday. I said, oh, okay, well, so that was like in the morning, or it was like last night for a couple of hours? He said, no, we had a prayer meeting yesterday. He said, once a month, the entire church gathers, and we pray from morning till night, and we fast for the entire day. And that's what we do as a church body. We just gather one, uh, one Saturday, I think it is, out of the month. We pray for the day, and we fast together. Um, now, before you think too much of that, trust me, you'll still think pretty highly of that. Uh, let me put a little bit in context for you. Remember that the majority of these brothers and sisters are in a Muslim context. So Muslims uh, spend a month, right, of uh, fasting from sunup to sundown. And they should be in prayer during the course of Ramadan. That is part of culture. They have other holy days and fastings and observances, right? And if in this culture you talk to somebody about Jesus and becoming a Christian, it would not be unusual for your average Muslim to say, why would I want to follow Jesus and become less religious than I am now? Why would I want to become a Christian and become less spiritual than I am currently as a follower of Muhammad, right? So I'm not saying that that's the reason why the brothers and sisters plan that. I'm just saying it is so natural for them in their way of life. I bring that story because it's such an encouragement and a reminder to me, and may it be to you as well. We are so much a product of our culture, right? We just are. And, and, and we shouldn't beat ourselves up for that unduly. But it is a reminder. Our brothers and sisters find it normal to spend a day a month 
fasting and praying together. It's just part of what they regularly do. And here's the point of that whole story. It's the humility. Hey, so what did you do yesterday? Oh, we had a prayer meeting. <laughs> I only had to ask him four times before I found out what that meant. Humility is the keynote of Philippians chapter 2. It's the keynote of the ministry of our Savior. He who came to bridge the gap to meet our greatest need and humble himself so that we could have bread, so that we could have sustenance. But it wasn't something that he could go to the market and buy, right? It was his own body that we had to eat. It was his own blood, he said, that had to be spilled so that we could drink, so that we could be saved. And he went to such great lengths, first and foremost, so that we could be his children and have fellowship together with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, which they had from all eternity. But he came in that great humility so also he could transform us so that we would become ambassadors for the same kind of selfless life that we see modeled in Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, the same kind of selfless life that we see in Alabachu and Henoch and Tesfaya Jembera and Efeso and Erbalo and so so, so many others. What does it mean, this kind of humility, this kind of selfless life? It's just the courage to be exactly what God has called you to be, nothing more and nothing less. In each and every circumstance where he has placed you in total obedience to him, all of it for the sheer pleasure of knowing him more. That's the beauty of following Christ. We don't do it to earn anything else but just more of knowing him. That is the transformed heart. That's the new affection that he gives. I want to know him, Paul says in Philippians 3, in the power of his death and resurrection and to be conformed into the likeness of his death, all for the sheer pleasure of knowing him more. This is the beauty of humility that leads to a selfless life for the cause of Christ. We become humble sacrificial, God-glorifying seekers after him as we lean more on his spirit and ask more for his help.